All right. Um, got a couple of minutes. I'm going to cover a lot of ground quickly. Um, so let's see here. I'm going to start today just giving you an introduction on um, a new series that we're going to be in for a while. And it's a series entitled Sound Doctrine, Knowing What You Believe and Why You Believe It. Yeah, we're going to spend a good while in this. Sound doctrine, knowing what you believe and why you believe it. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, it says that the church is the pillar and foundation of truth. So if you ever want to know what truth is, you should be able to come to church to find out the truth because God is truth. The word is truth. And so we're going to spend time. Um, we don't want to be Christians who are parrots. And parrots are animals that God created that parrot what other people say. Parrots say what they hear. They don't necessarily think on their own. And we don't want parrot Christians where you can only say what you've heard your pastors say or your favorite theologians say about various topics of the Christian faith. We want you to go deeper than that and to be one who can think and process for yourself. That's when it becomes a conviction and not just knowledge that when you not only own the doctrine, but the doctrine owns you. And so I don't want to, during this series, and we're going to talk about a number of wonderful truths, um, I don't want you just parroting what I talk about. I want you to dig in. I want you to own these things for yourself so that they become yours. Um, so we're going to know what you believe and why you believe it. Um, so today, let's just talk about what sound doctrine sounds like. What does sound doctrine sound like? Okay, this is sound doctrine. What, what does it sound like? I'm going to give you a statement that I heard many times while I was in undergrad, which was a Christian school, and I got my major in biblical studies. Then I went to seminary and um, got a master's in religious education. Now I'm pursuing a doctorate in strategic leadership. And this is something that Many professors, especially those who teach Old Testament, New Testament theology, what they will say. This is what they will say. They will say there is one interpretation of Scripture and many applications. One interpretation of Scripture, but many applications. And that is true. Um, the authors had one intention when they were writing under the unction and inspiration of the Holy Spirit. They had one intention. And so there is one interpretation or one meaning of a text and many applications. How do we apply these various truths? But here's where the problem comes. Although there is one interpretation, the question is who has that one interpretation? That's where the problems come in because many times the people who make that statement they assume they've got the one interpretation because the one interpretation usually means the right interpretation of the scripture. And the way they see it is right. And if people disagree with the way they see it, then they are wrong. So there's some arrogance that can be read into this statement because there can be assumptions made that we know what the one interpretation is. And so we want to be careful of that because, I, as I'm going to say today, no one person has the perfect interpretation on every portion of Scripture. 
Um, one of my professors even went so far as to say that he doesn't really rely on commentaries written by one person, meaning that if one person writes a commentary of all 66 books of the Bible, he looks at that like, there's no way you can be an expert on all 66 books of the Bible and you've got it in a wonderful one volume set, you know, or even the study Bibles that we use because those people can be and have been wrong. Okay, before you throw a shoe at me, let me just dig in a little deeper. Who has the one interpretation? Is it John Calvin? Uh, is it John Wesley? What about Barclay and Knox? What about Spurgeon, Augustine? Do they have the one interpretation of Scripture? John R.W. Stott, John MacArthur, K. Arthur, Beth Moore, T.D. Jakes, Tony Evans, Charles Swindoll, Joseph Prince. You just name all your favorite teachers, preachers, authors. Do they have the one interpretation of scripture? Well, what about various denominations? What about the Methodists? What about the Baptists? And within each one of these denominations, there are subcategories and subgroups within those denominations that see this one book very differently uh, and can divide over things like baptism or uh, ministry to infants, uh, all kinds of things. So who's right? Uh, the Lutherans, the Catholics, the Church of God in Christ, uh, the Church of God, uh, the Church of Christ, the Pentecostal Assemblies of the World, Evangelical Free, Presbyterian Church in America, Presbyterian Church USA. I mean, who has the one interpretation of Scripture? Well, what about seminaries? Oh, we no doubt it's theological seminary. They've got to have the one interpretation. Well, what about Liberty Baptist Theological Seminary, Covenant Seminary? What about Southern Regent, on and on, Biola? So many great places of learning. And everybody's saying there's one interpretation of Scripture, many applications. Well, there are several layers in interpreting the Scripture, which should leave every expositor, every interpreter humbled. Let me just give you eight, and there are several more, many, many more. But there are many layers to the Bible. You've got the linguistic layer. The Bible was not written in English it was written in Aramaic, in Hebrew, and in Greek. And so you've got to depend on people to translate it from one language into another language. And then you've got to deal with etymology, and that is how words change over time. So what a word may have meant in 1600 may not be the same meaning that it has today. Like the word gay. There was a time when the word gay was a Word that you, oh, man, I'm feeling real gay today. But you hear a brother say that today, hmm, words change over time. Oh, man, can somebody say A? If you can't give me A, man, just give me A. a. So linguistics, man, and most of us who stand behind the sacred desk to open the sacred book, we may have had three or four years of language study in Hebrew or Greek, but we're not immersed in the language because coming out of the linguistics, you have grammar. Greek has so many different tenses in it. Hebrew has so many different tenses in it. And when they are writing this, you've got to have some understanding of the tenses of the verbs and the participles. And is it present tense? Is it an aorist tense? What does that stuff mean? So it, it, it has a layer, even grammatically. But then there's the literary layer. The Bible is literature. It's not only a historical document, but it's a document that has different kinds of literature in it, like prose and hyperbole and rhyme, um, all kinds of stuff, metaphors and similes. And you got to know if, if the writer is being sarcastic. And 
I mean, you got to know if it is a prophetic piece that's being spoken, a romantic piece that's being spoken, which means we've got to understand the history, the history of the Jewish people, the history of what was going on in the world at the time. And the Bible was put together by over 40, by around 40 different authors over a period of 1600 years on three different continents. And so you got to get into the history, you know, B.C. and A.D. and all of that. There's a lot. Then there's the cultural layer. You know, if you just jump in and try to read Ruth and you don't understand the culture of the kinsman redeemer, you'll miss the meaning of the story. And dudes are changing sandals with each other. There's culture involved. And if we just try to immediately make the scripture apply to our contemporary context, we're going to mess up. So we've got to first understand as best we can the original intent, culture, history, language of the original authors and writers. Then there's the social layer. Um, there is a whole lot of politics in the Bible. Um, you got to look at social systems and social classes, how women were treated, children, the poor, uh, the wealthy. I mean, there's so much in it. And then there's the theological layer. Where is God? Like when you read Job and you have men coming, giving their perspective about God, their perspective is off. So if you just jump in and grab what one of those guys said about God without understanding as the next one, the context, you can paint a wrong picture of God just as those men painted a wrong picture of God to Job. So there's a theological layer through scripture. Genesis 1-1, God created. Moses does not try to come out and explain God. He is assuming with his readers and listeners that they know that there is a God. So, and he couldn't explain God if he tried because God doesn't have a beginning. He doesn't have an end. He's God. He's eternal. And so you have finite people trying to write about an infinite God, which is why he must superintend the process through the Holy Spirit to give us what we can contain, to give us what we can even comprehend. And even in that, we have trouble comprehending. So, so, sound doctrine. Hang with me. Then I think the biggest one is contextual layer. Because I may never study Greek or Hebrew or really understand grammar. I may be like one of those old slave mothers on the front porch rocking who knew something about God and got the context of the story of the children of Israel that was passed down orally through song. And so they understand the story. We read the Bible, man. We just don't take a verse out of context because any verse taken out of context can become a proof text to start a brand new set. Because you can make the Bible say whatever you want it to say. In the book of Ecclesiastes, it says you should anoint your head and wear white. Somebody could jump on that and say everybody should have a jerry curl and wear a white suit every day. You can make the Bible say whatever you want it to say. Jesus was taken out of context many a times. So that's why we got to understand not only the verse, but the chapter. Not only the chapter, the book. Not only the book, the entire Bible. Mm, that's why it takes time. But. I can understand the Bible by reading before, reading after, just simply reading. And here, here's one of the key points in Bible interpretation. Holy Spirit, would you help me understand what you wrote through Paul, what you wrote through Peter, what you wrote through Moses? Would you teach me today? Before I go to these good Bible teachers and commentaries, I think there's something you want me to learn. Help me to be a good inductive Bible student and so, man, we don't want to leave the Holy Spirit out of this. 
And so let me just hit you real quick. I'm going to move quickly. 2 Timothy 2.15. We're told, be diligent to present yourself to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We become ashamed when we can't divide the word. We become ashamed when Muslims walk up to us and they know more about the Bible than we know about the Bible. Or Jehovah's Witness want to take you in your Bible and show you something that appears to be a contradiction. But it's not because there are no contradictions in the Bible. If there is a contradiction, it's with the interpreter, not with the original author and only author who is God. But they'll play games. And many times we get ashamed because we don't know where stuff is in the Bible. Why? Because we're not studying. We're doing devotional reading, but we're not doing Bible study. And every now and then, man, you've got to break out your concordances, your Bible dictionaries. You've got to study to show yourself approved. And then it says here, rightly dividing the word of truth. Um, this does not say perfectly dividing, but rightly, or as we'll learn in weeks to come, just soundly dividing the word, cutting it properly. Um, you ever get an email from someone? And you don't interpret the email properly. Like, they didn't mean it the way you interpreted it. But as you're reading it, you don't pick up the spirit behind what they say. You're just reading the words, and you miss the meaning. Or uh, I wrote a book several years ago, and I'm going to write one next year. And what if somebody who just met me grabs my book and just kind of browses through it, and then they start going around misinterpreting what I said? Number one, you barely know me. Then you didn't really read it. And then you're saying, I said this when I didn't say that or I didn't mean that. What you're saying I meant. Well, God wrote a book. God sent an email. He's so patient and long-suffering that over the centuries, his creation has misinterpreted what he said. We're telling lies on God. And we're misinterpreting his book. Um, but thank God he doesn't call us to have perfect interpretation. He wants us to have sound interpretation. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 14, it says, Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless, and consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. As also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. There's so much in that. But basically what you have here is an apostle, Peter, addressing his recipients of his letter, and he's telling them, about the end times and all the things that are going to happen and the plethora of false teachers that will arise and how God will not spare them any more than he spared the angels who had fallen and on and on. And he's getting into all of this deep stuff. But then he says, but I'm not the only one that wrote about this stuff. Paul wrote about it, too, in his writings. So this is in the first century. The New Testament has not been compiled yet. It is being compiled. They have the Old Testament. And so these apostles, remember the early church, they continued in the apostles' doctrine, Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And so these apostles are writing what will end up becoming the scriptures for the church. And Paul, or Peter says, Paul wrote about end time stuff also. But this guy says, the stuff Paul 
wrote about is hard to understand. And this is one apostle saying that about another apostle's writing. And this is in the first century where both of them are alive and they understand the historical context. They both understand the linguistics of the moment. And Peter said, Paul's stuff is hard to understand. So for me, mm, I don't understand it when someone in the 21st century stands up behind a lectern and begin to talk about the writings of Paul as if they know exactly what Paul meant when he wrote what he wrote. And they say it, you know, with such authority. No wonder knowledge puffs up. It make you stupid. If Peter didn't understand everything, how does a modern day preacher, pastor, writer stand up and try to act like they know exactly what Paul meant when he talked about head coverings, that they know exactly what Paul talked about when he talked about women in the church, that they know exactly when Peter's like, I don't understand some of the stuff that brother talking about. So therefore, again, the expositor, the one who interprets scripture, we have to be humble and teachable because we don't know everything. We're looking in this book and it's like we're looking dimly, but one day we're going to know perfectly. We don't know perfectly right now. So we have to have sound doctrine. Oh, please hang with me. It is not humanly possible to have perfect doctrine, even though many of us think that we do. But God does not expect for his followers to have, excuse me, but God ex does expect his followers to have sound doctrine. No one has perfect doctrine. No one knows everything about the Bible. I love it when I meet scholars and they're humble and they're still learning and you can even teach them some things. But man, we become pharisaical when we think we know. And that's what Jesus said to the Pharisees. Okay, y'all try to find your identity and how much you know. And he said that y'all study the scriptures rightfully. Yeah, you study the scriptures. But guess what? You miss the main one that the scriptures are speaking about because Moses wrote about me. You're reading the Bible, but you missed me. And man, we don't want to do anything and we miss Jesus. We don't want to have a bunch of knowledge and we miss Jesus, or we don't see Jesus showing up in our lives. Again, I know a lot of guys, they got a lot of facts, a lot of knowledge. They know the Bible. But, man, when I look at your life, you're, you're mean towards your kids, you're harsh towards your wife, you're irritable, you're grouchy. Man, the more you know about God, it should affect how you live. And then, and here's the irony, the more you know about God, the less you know about God. The more you know about the Bible, the less you know about the Bible. When I went to Israel for the second time, I wanted to quit preaching. I'm like, oh, Lord, I don't know anything. I don't know it. Because now I'm getting more of the Hebrew understanding. I'm going to these places uh, geographically, and I'm seeing stuff. I'm like, oh, man, I, I don't know anything. But there is hope for us. There's hope. Hang on. Hang on. Sound doctrine sounds like what does it sound like pastor it sounds like teaching that is balanced in the whole counsel of God's word and is in accordance with the gospel all right this is probably going to be a part two all right I'm not going to rush this sound doctrine what does it sound like it sounds like teaching that is balanced in the whole council not part of the council not part of the bible that we're experts in the new testament but that's kind of foolish because the Old Testament is what feeds into the New Testament. And what may not be really understood in the Old Testament becomes revealed in the New Testament. 
So you can't just say, man, I'm all up in the Old Testament. I got something for you on that, too. You know, the people who just want to live under the law. Uh, uh, uh. Wow. Hold on. We've got to be balanced in the whole council. And that means passages that we like and don't like. When people put together systematic theology, and we should have systematic theology, systematic theology about bibliology, anthropology, soteriology, hemartiology, pneumatology, we should have systematic theology. But we need to be careful because sometimes when we're putting our system together, there are verses and passages that don't fit into our system. So if we have a particular bent, bias, slant, or preference, which we all have when we read the Bible. We all have bents, biases, preferences, and slants. And so if you have a slant put towards a particular thing, like the people who believe in, man, okay, election. I believe in election. It's a biblical concept. But I also believe in free will because you see that in the scriptures as well. People who believe in election usually have an extreme view that is out of balance. And people who believe only in free will have an extreme view that is out of balance. And these two begin to fight with each other. And so if that verse, and man, that's a good verse, that tears down my whole argument. But I can't accept that because I got to have my systematic theology going this way, supporting this view. But man, that verse does mess my stuff up. But anyway, I got more verses over here. That's why we got to be humble and teachable and again, be sound. Oh, boy, I love this. I love this. Look at Luke 15, 27. It says, and this is Jesus with the story of the prodigal son. And he said to him, your brother has come, and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. So this is what a servant said to the older brother. Your brother is safe and sound. So there is the word sound being used in the Bible, and it's being used to speak of the physical condition of the younger brother who went out and spent his money, you know, living frivolously. He comes back, and he is safe and sound meaning he is healthy, he is whole, he is well. And as we learned in Israel and as Christy teaches so well, that in that culture, if you leave your father like that and you take the inheritance and you disrespect him like that, then you come back, the village could hurt you. You know, and I forget the exact term. Well, it starts with a K. Where's Christy at? What am I about? I forget the term. But, but they, they could hurt you because you disrespected the father. But the father had to go out. He ran to get his son, and he protected his son from the zeal of the villagers to hurt him. And so the son came back safe and sound. Not a hair was out of place. No bones were broken. This word, the English word sound, is translated from the Greek word hujiaino, which means to be sound in health, wholesome, and balanced. So in the Greek language, in Luke 15, in Koine Greek, or the common language of the people, the word is hujiaino, sound, whole, balanced, healthy. He came back healthy. He came back whole. Now, in 1 Timothy, uh, let's see here. Can I do this? I don't know if I can do this. I'm going to give you something real quick. I'm going to give you a, a passage where... Paul used this term with Timothy, a term speaking of the physical body. He used it now metaphorically to speak of doctrine, to have sound doctrine, healthy doctrine. In 1 Timothy, there's a problem going on. 
Paul had gone to Ephesus and ministered there for about three years. So I'm giving you some background and some context so that we can try to have a balanced interpretation of what we're about to say. So according to Acts chapter 20, he meets with the elders of Ephesus after being there for three years. And he tells them, I've got to keep on going on to the next place to plant churches and keep going. And he calls those elders because he established a church and he got those elders in place. And he said to them, I'm telling y'all, as soon as I leave, savage wolves are going to come in here and try to tear this church up. And he said, even from amongst your number here, there are going to be guys who are going to rise up and say things that are not correct. So he is warning these guys that they're going to be teachers who are going to come in with bad teaching. Nothing like bad teaching will tear up not only the church, but individuals in Christ. And so he warns them. Now, he goes away and apparently that happened because many commentators say that when Paul got out of jail after his first Roman imprisonment in Acts 28, he and Timothy went back towards Ephesus. And when he went back to that church that he had started, stayed there for three years, warned them about false teachers, that those false teachers had risen up in the church and Many of them probably were elders. Oh, man, I wish I could dig more into this. But I'm just trying to set you up here. So he has to deal with some situations there in 1 Timothy, and he has to uh, confront Hymenaeus and Alexander. He rebukes them publicly and even hands them over to Satan, i.e. church discipline, because they're teaching, they're teaching bad things into the church. And so he leaves Timothy there. Timothy, stay here. Timothy don't want to be there. Timothy is timid. He don't want uh, conflict and battle. But he's like, I'm telling you, you got to stay here. And you've got to tell the teachers who are here what they're to teach. And then you got to deal with the ones who are teaching incorrect doctrine. That's part of church uh, custodialship. And so that's the background. Now, there are two teachings that are prevalent in the first century. There's Gnosticism, and then there is excessive Judaism, or where people become Judaizers. Gnosticism, coming in from Hellenism and from the world, that's a kind of um, approach to life that says that it's all about higher knowledge. And that when, you know, enlightenment with the Greek philosophers, so when they got saved, they brought that baggage with them into the kingdom of this higher enlightenment and knowledge. And so their approach to God was, I can love God with my mind, but my body is just evil matter, and I can do anything I want with my body. It's the mind that matters, and so I can love God with my mind and do whatever I want with my body. And then there are people in the church, the Judaizers, who are like, okay, we have come to Christ, but we have not laid down the law of Moses. So what we're telling Gentiles who are coming in, y'all got to be circumcised to be Christians. Y'all got to keep the law of Moses to be Christian. Amen. You know Reading through the Bible, Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council. No, no, no. That yoke, as Peter said, our forefathers couldn't bear, and we're not placing that on the Gentiles. Mm -mm. It's not about the cutting of the flesh. It's about the change of the heart. So Christianity was this new thing that was evolving that did not rely on the law and did not agree with Gnosticism. But that was in the church. Just like today, we have a proliferation of humanism and uh, uh, prosperity theology that's going through the church today. And when you stand up and speak against it, 
people think that you're being a heretic as you call out the heresy in other teachers. But I love Paul because Paul not only called folk out, he put that name in Scripture. Uh, Hymenaeus and Alexander, I handed them over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. For real? Timothy, stay there. All right, here we go. 1 Timothy 1.1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God, our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope. To Timothy, a true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God, our Father, and Jesus Christ, our Lord. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. Now the purpose of this commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience and from sincere faith from which some having strayed have turned aside to idle talk they strayed from love and a good conscience they strayed from love and a sincere faith and they've turned into gossips and stories and fables he said that in verse 7 they desire to be teachers of the law understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm wow verse 8 but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully stop and pause Interpreting scripture with scripture. Romans chapter 7, the law is good. I am not, and I can't keep it. The purpose of the law was to show that I'm broken. And the purpose of the law, according to Galatians, was to drive me to Jesus Christ, who kept the law perfectly for me and died for lawbreakers. So when someone comes to Christ, they are under grace. They are no longer under the law. But the law is good. The law is right. The law shows you like a mirror that you are spiritually jacked up. But the mirror can't make you right. That's why we need Jesus. That's why the focus is on Jesus. Because Gnosticism and being a Judaizer, what it does is it puts all the focus on man. Works-based righteousness. Works-based religion. But with Christianity, it's a faith. We look to Jesus. He gets all the glory, not man. Oh, man, I wish I could stomp that for a sec. But let me keep rolling. He says, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Use the law properly. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers. Stop. The truth of the law should bring conviction to sinners. And he gives us a laundry list of sinners here and sins that people commit. But the way God also created us, he put in us a conscience where we know right from wrong. But then coupled with that, there's the law that amplifies right from wrong. Why is God doing all of that? To let us know that only he is right, that he is pure, that he is holy, and we need salvation. We need mercy. We need grace. And so the law is good when you use it to see people get convicted of sin. And then he goes on to say, this law is for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers. And if there's any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. Pastor, wrap it up. Living under the law is not living under sound teaching. Living under Gnosticism is not living under sound doctrine. Those things are contrary. If you try to live under the law, that's not sound. It doesn't make sense. Because if you break it in one point, you break it in every point. But we are little law people. We like laws because somehow we feel like we got to do something that we can perform, that there's some righteousness in us. 
We like law. Give me a law. And if it ain't the law of Moses, give me the law of a man. Give me the law of a denomination. Give me the law of a preacher. I can't curl my hair. I can't perm my hair. I can't wear pants. I can't wear makeup. I got to do this. I got to do that. I got to be baptized this way. I got to be baptized that way. We Laws, rules. But God is like, you're not under the law. That's not sound. Because the law you make, you going to break. And the law he made, you break. And then with the Gnostics, it's not sound. So sound doctrine is teaching that is balanced in the whole counsel of the word. And I'll stop right there. We'll get back into this next week. We're going to take our time. Hang with me. Mm -mm. We're going to talk about balance because if hujiane means sound, healthy, balanced, you know, it reminds me when I was growing up in elementary school and they taught us about the four basic food groups. And you had to have the minerals and the vegetables and all this stuff, you know, to be, to be healthy. Because if you have too much of one food group, you're out of balance and you're not healthy. So your diet should be balanced and healthy. You should exercise, you know, because if you don't exercise, you're not healthy. Um, you should bathe yourself. You should be hygienic because if not, you're going to clear a room, you know. So you want to take care of yourself. And in some countries, people have trouble with hygiene. They don't have toothbrushes and toothpaste and clean water. So when you go to other parts of the world, impoverished parts of the world, there are smells and things like that. They're not hygienic. They're more susceptible to diseases. And so when you look at being hygienic, man, it's talking about your mind, your body, and your soul. All of it working together in balance. But when you emphasize one to the detriment of the other, you get out of balance. Sound doctrine balanced, healthy doctrine, not overemphasizing one thing and underemphasizing another. Man, balance the whole council. And this is what Paul said to the Ephesian elders. He said, man, while I was with y'all, I never shunned declaring the whole council of God. If you go to a church or you listen to a preacher and all they talk about is the same topic, you know, speak it, speak, get the money and all this, that's all they talk about. Yeah, the Bible talks about money and speaking life and all that kind of stuff, but that's all you talk about? There's more in the Bible. Yeah, God wants to heal, but man, what about those parts when he didn't heal? That don't fit inside your theology. Your stuff is off balance. So the job of the expositor, exegesis, what do I pull from the Bible, not eisegesis, what I read into the Bible, because I got a slant, a bias, a preference, a prejudice. The early Schofield Bible... They had stuff in the footnotes about the curse of black people. That's Schofield, the early reference Bible. Black people are cursed. And if all you read are the footnotes and you don't read the book yourself, am I making sense to anybody? Because if your doctrine ain't sound, your life will not be sound. Oh, come back next week and get some more. Let's stand for prayer. Who's supposed to close in prayer? Somebody, who's supposed to close? Lord, have mercy. The elder told me to close. Let me check my paper here. Praise the Lord. Let's go old school. Grab. Oh, oh you coming up? You got you. Oh, you close. Sister Tiffany. Uh, let the church receive Sister Tiffany as she comes. Let's give her a round of applause as she comes. See, some of us come from them churches like that. Some of us come from churches where women can't stand back here now. They, they got to stand over there somewhere. All right. This stuff is going to mess with all of us. 
but praise the Lord. I like messing with you. Because if God going to mess with me all week, I'm just going to come share the love. Tiffany, come on. Amen. <laughs> well, I actually have uh, two announcements before we close in prayer. Um, my first announcement is for college and career ministry, which meets first and third Sunday um, in the White House directly following service. Um, so not this Sunday, next Sunday. Um, college and career ministry is just a chance for us to fellowship together, to play games, to walk with each other, encourage each other. Um, because we're so busy in life, it's, it's easy not to do that. Um, so we're having a kickoff event. Um, we're going to play kickball <laughs> next Sunday. Um, we're going to meet at the White House at 1 o'clock, and we're going to have a picnic. So if you're career aged, which is up to early 30s, if you're college ministry going into college or coming out of college, please come and celebrate with us. And then uh, we have the anniversary celebration, which is on Wednesday the 24th. It's from 6.30 to 8.30. Um, you can sign up online and in the lobby, and there's more information online and in the lobby. And so, uh, bow your heads. Thank you, Lord, for everything that you've done for us. Thank you for sending your son to die on the cross for us. Thank you for loving us and being patient with us and just walking with us through our everyday lives. And you know what everyone in this room needs, and I pray, Lord, that you just you comfort them, you provide for them, um, you just encourage them. And uh, thank you, Lord, for letting us be able to assemble today and just worship you and encourage each other. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.